Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Barrel Proof Rye are available through Hudson Wine Market, with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the Barrel Rye finished in Armagnac casks. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums, free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, if I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're taking a break from talking to distillers and producers to talk to one of the most influential writers, critics, researchers of our, uh, I was going to say whiskey, but really spirits movement in the last few decades. And that is Mr. F. Paul Packold. So, Paul, welcome on. Oh, David, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute delight to be with you. Well, and um, of course, Paul has earned many accolades over his career. Um, just for the sake of time, I will um, skip them for now, but they will be included in the show notes. And honestly, if you go to uh, com, check out the accolades, the books, the many resources that he has available. Um, I encourage you to do so. I took advantage of that for research for this episode, and you'll see it come through as we go through. So my first question for you starts from where this interview stemmed from. So uh, Fred Minnick made a post a few weeks ago hmm. about announcing that the Ultimate Spirits competition, one of your babies, uh, will be ending. And so I just wanted to start there, you know, to ask the obvious, why stop now? I hate running in place. I've, I've always, my career, <clears throat> I think, David, has been fruitful because I've never been satisfied with staying in the same place all the time. I always look for new adventures. I always look for new challenges, really. I need to be challenged in order to be at my best. And I found out that for me to be doing the same thing over and over and over again, it just doesn't work for me. It works for some people, you know, and I certainly acknowledge that and I say, God bless. Um, but for me, that's never been uh, an object, uh, an objective. The reason that we decided to let go um well, several reasons. One, uh, I had been running competitions for basically a quarter of a century. I co-founded San Francisco World Spirits Competition with Anthony Dyes Blue in 2000. 
ran that as judging director for, I guess, 10 years. And then I left San Francisco. Uh, in fact, I left all competitions that I was either judging director or a, a panelist or uh, a panel captain in um, in 2009 in order to start Ultimate Beverage Challenge. And the first few years, we did cocktails, we did wine as well, because for a long time, I was a wine writer, a wine journalist and a wine judge, um, and worked at a winery for 10 years. So uh, my love of wine continues to this day. Um, but we ended up where we really focused on spirits, just because of the explosion of spirits in the marketplace. So we decided that really our our most important um, objective was to focus on what was happening in the marketplace now, and that was spirits. Uh, so we did that for 14 years. Uh, to be honest, um, the partners, my wife, Sue Woodley, David Talbot, and I figured we'd probably have a good run if we did 10 years. And again, knowing my... Uh, Knowing my personality, not to not to keep repeating myself, um, we ended up doing 14 years because it was a wonderful run and every year was bigger than the last and, and more successful than the last. Um, but it was it was just time to move on after a quarter of a century of running uh, competitions. I just felt it was time to move aside, let some of the other people who were doing it have their time in the sun. Um, so that's one of the reasons. The other reason was our consulting business, meaning Sue, my wife and partner and I, has just exploded over the last dozen years. And um, so we decided to spend more time helping distillers, producers, marketers with developing or creating new products for the marketplace. We felt that was really more important right now than doing a competition. Uh, we were, it wasn't an easy decision, David. I, I'll be honest, it, it really took the, the, myself and my partners, we took three months to really talk this out, uh, what, how we wanted to see the future, how we wanted to see the legacy of Ultimate Spirits Challenge in particular. But we always came to the same conclusion. Let's go out on a really high note uh, with more entries than ever before this year. Let's go out on a high note and leave some room for some of the other very good people who are doing competitions right now. And um, And then, so now Sue and I are focusing almost exclusively on helping uh, producers with their products. And I mean, as you, I don't have to tell you, I mean, my God, you're on the front line of this. You, you know how many people are getting involved, not just with whiskey, but with spirits across the board. And oftentimes the, the learning um, level is quite low when it comes to understanding, one, what it means to produce a spirit, and two, how to get it into the marketplace and be successful with it in such a crowded marketplace right now. So that's, those are the two primary reasons why we let go. And uh, it was just time. It was just time. Was there any thought to um, handing the reins over to like a new generation to continue that 
or was it really letting the other competitions take their time in the spotlight? Well, we we have had offers to buy it, <clears throat> and we were unanimous in our agreement that no, we, we weren't going to. We were going to leave entirely, and yeah, we could have made a lot of money on a sale, but money isn't our. It's not our motivation. Our motivation is integrity, and and our reputations. If someone would have taken it over and not run it to the absurdly high standards that we established, that would reflect badly on us eventually, because somehow my name would always be associated with it. Um, and to me, uh, my uppermost concern through since uh, since I've been a journalist uh, since the late 1970s has always been to have a reputation with impeccable integrity and to do things right. And so you never know where something is going to go. If you let somebody else at the steering wheel, they may drive it off the road. And, and we didn't want to be involved in that. The money wasn't important to us at all. We just we just wanted to end on a very high note, which we've done. Move on to other things that we've done in the past. Fair enough. And to go back to the uh, the beginning and the impetus for starting the competition, first at Ultimate Beverage Com- uh, Challenge, and then as Ultimate Spirits Competition, um, you've uh, told the story of the infamous ten to twelve overproof rums in Barbados as. Uh, a moment where you're like, mm, we need to, we need to do better in competitions. <laughs> uh, now that happened in, you know, in the mid two thousands. And then you're starting this competition in um, 2009, 2010. And now 14 years later, ending it now between, let's say when it started and ended, how do you see the spirits competition landscape has changed? I think a lot of people, um, well, <clears throat> what we did find out, certainly just through mostly through judges of other competitions, is that a lot of the competitions basically were parroting what we did because I, I'm so strict in how I judge things. And this goes back to starting the Spirit Journal in 1991 where I always held myself to very strict standards on evaluation and analysis. I have an extremely, uh, <laughs> some people have called it insane regimen, um, but that's something that works for me. I come from a family in the Midwest. We were very structured. Um, it, it was a very tight-knit group. Everybody worked hard, but Integrity was always the, the most important thing. So when we, uh, the reason that I had left um, San Francisco, the reason that I had resigned from all of the different uh, uh, competitions I was part of was because I felt there was a better way to skin the cat. And um, my way of doing things, I basically mirrored how I set up our regimen for judging with panels the same way that I keep a very close rein on myself when I'm doing uh, reviews, when I'm doing uh, analysis for our clients. I keep, I keep a very strict regimen and I 
took that regimen and basically made it um, adaptable to have a multi-panel uh, group do it. And it worked. Um, and then as, as time went on, and judges from other competitions would come to me and say, <clears throat> gee, we know how you do things. We really respond to how you do things um, because you respect the judges. You don't overtax the judges. You don't give them flights of 40 bourbons in one flight, um, with which unfortunately uh, some competitions do. And so I just heard from judges, from other people participating, how things were going in other competitions. And it pretty much made me realize that, again, integrity is the most important thing. Honesty, independence are the most important things. So I set up regimens with the judges where no panel would ever have more than six products in one flight. Uh, the flights would be tightly controlled so that it was direct competition between like with like products, uh, which is the truest way to judge anything. Um, but we also would take days off. Because we had our own facility, we had this great luxury, David, of time was not a problem for us. Um, most of the other competitions today, and, and again, I, I'm not criticizing what other people do. And, you know, I really want people to know that I'm just drawing differences. Um, but most other competitions rent space from a hotel event space or a restaurant. So there's a time limit on it. Um, with, with, with our competitions, we had the property. So we didn't worry about time. We could do as long as we wanted. And this is, this is why we would often take two months <laughs> to do Ultimate Spirits Challenge, because I wanted to give the judges the type of environment that one was clinical, but also was comfortable and friendly. Um, I didn't want it to be in a hotel event space. I didn't want it to be in the back room of a restaurant. I wanted it to be a comfortable space so that people felt they wanted to be there. And they weren't, the judges weren't overtaxed. And I thought happy judges will give us better results. They'll give us truer results. If judges are grumbling that, you know, here's another flight of 36 gins, you know, I, and we've just gone through 120 spirits already today. Uh, you know, I don't want to be one of those distillers of the gins have, and having my product judged by that panel if they're all disgruntled about it. So uh, to me, job one was to create a system and an environment where the judges wanted to be there. They, you know, I, I would never have them taste more than 45 spirits in a day. So yeah, we'd only judge from 10 in the morning till three in the afternoon, but then people would go home and, and live the rest of their lives. Um, and they'd come back the next day or they'd have a day off. And then, it, then they'd come back totally refreshed. So these are things that we did that, you know, I hear now are being copied by other competitions, and I'm actually glad for that. I'm, I'm happy, and I feel safe in kind of leaving this arena because I think people, the organizers, have gotten the message perhaps that treat your judges well, be realistic with what you expect from them, 
don't burn out their palates within the first uh, 45 minutes of the day and you'll do better. So, you know, look, if um, if other competitions uh, show respect to their judges and respect to the process, then I think we'll be fine. Understanding that uh, many competitions, as you say, have been parroting to one extent or another, the USC for really since its inception, but certainly in the last few years, as you close down for the final time, do you feel that any of them hew close enough to your standard that you would see it as kind of a, a lineage or another way to ask that question would simply just be with the USC no longer happening? Which competitions would you look to as the higher standard ones? I'd look to Fred's. I'd look to Ascot because I believe, um, I mean, I've known Fred for a while. I really respect what he does. I, I think he has real integrity. And knowing Fred, I think, I think he would really to him it would be important to do things right so i would look to ascot yeah um the others to be honest david i don't know enough about i mean i would hear dribs and drabs from different judges wanting to judge with us because they were a little bit disconcerted with how the process was going on with other competitions um you know and i i don't want to be in the business of denigrating what other people do i just don't um I would just rather just say my hope is that the other competitions would either call, which I'd be happy to explain what we did if they would want to know. Um, why not? Let's, you know, the beautiful thing, the reason that I've stuck around this business for so long is because I think the people are terrific in the beverage alcohol business. Uh, as well as the hospitality business. They're just the nicest people that I know of. And I'm always so happy to be in with my peers, either in a restaurant or a bar or, or at a press tasting. Um, they're, they're just great people. And I think they get the fact that integrity and reputation are so important. Um, so, you know, if somebody wants to call us and just say, look, can you... Give us some guidance on on what you did and why you guys were so successful. Um, I'd be happy to tell them. Absolutely. I I think it's all about sharing. You know, beverage alcohol, when, when you look at the whole history of beverage alcohol, it's all about community. The reason that there are bars and taverns and is because that was community and it was community sharing ideas. It was community, hearing the news of the day. It was, um, you know, uh, talking about a wedding and how to, how to do a wedding. It was all about community. And I think, as I say, the reason I've been around this gig for, you know, since 1973 is because I've always loved the community of beverage alcohol and of bars and restaurants, the hospitality industry, because it really is is a communal 
transfer of information and good feeling and and honesty. So yeah, I, I, you know, if somebody wants to call and say, how'd you do it? I'd be happy to tell them, you know, I'm, I'm out of it now and I'm doing other things and, you know, I'm writing other books and I'm consulting. And so I'd be happy to share what we learned, you know, because it was a learning process for us too, David. I mean, I think, you know, my, my, 10 years with San Francisco was very good. And because, you know, I appreciated the fact that Anthony Dias Blue had enough confidence in me as a spirits guy, because at the time he was not, he was strictly a wine uh, journalist and, and uh, competition person. Um, you know, the fact that he trusted me to get San Francisco going w- was very nice. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we did there. And, and today, to this day, you know, it's the number one, without any question, uh, the number one competition in the world. So um, I think it's, it's just, I don't want to see any, any discord, <laughs> if possible. I believe in communication. And that's the beauty of beverage alcohol is it's all about communication. And to back that up as well, I would, uh, I'm thinking back, of course, to my interview with Dr. Edward Singerland, who wrote about drunk and uh, beverage alcohol, both unintentional and intentional in his creation (laughs) uh, in how we grew as a civilization. So um, I'll have to re-listen to my own episode on that because uh, it's it's a fascinating conversation to have. Um, But I wanted to, with that segue, jump into... Uh, your own history in writing, which, as you said, started as a wine writer in uh, 73, is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was um, I had uh, uh, attended UC Berkeley in the late 60s. And after that, I moved up to Santa Rosa in uh, Sonoma County because I loved Northern California in particular. Uh, Growing up in Chicago, it was just such a vast departure from the Midwest being in Northern California, uh, particularly the Bay area and uh, which I still have great, uh, great friends in. Uh, and I, I had no design, even though my major was journalism, David, I had no design at that point. I was still 22 or so. I had no, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so I moved up to Santa Rosa, got married, um and uh got a job at uh, what at the time was Sonoma Vineyards Rodney Strong Vineyards today and uh, but basically Rod hired me to be the landscaper because I I did landscaping on and off to help support myself when I was at university and um so I did that and then I just got into writing um started writing probably, I would guess, in the late 70s. Um, and I'd send articles off to different magazines and they'd get accepted. And I would think, hey, this is easy. <laughs> no problem. You know, send these off and my name's in print. There you go. And you get a check for a couple hundred dollars. This is this is a, kind of a nice gig. Um, and eventually I, I was writing quite a bit. and. Um, Rod called me into his office one morning and he said, um, you know, you're a really good writer. 
Uh, unfortunately, you're such a good writer, you're really of little use to me anymore at the winery, I have to tell you. And and I was kind of, you know, I, he was he was a, a real mentor to me, and um, and and the depth of his friendship was such that he could say to me, "Go, go do what you should be doing. You're you're not meant to be here any longer." But what he said before I left, and to be honest, I was kind of hurt at the time. Um, he said. Don't stay in California because everybody with a sharp pencil in California at the time considered themselves a wine writer. So he said, go to New York. And he said, here's, here's the caveat. Don't call me until you're writing for the New York Times. You're that good. But I don't want to hear from you until you're writing for the New York Times. So with my tale uh, uh, beneath my legs, I drove across country, got established in in New York, worked for a wine store, Morell and Company again. Wonderful mentor, Peter Morell. Um, and I started writing, and I was writing for a lot of people at the time. I mean, five, six different publications. Um, and I started a wine school. And in my loft in Tribeca in uh, Manhattan, and at an advanced class in 19, um, well, must been it must have been 88. At the end of 1988, three guys from the New York Times were attending this advanced class. And after the class, they came up to me and said, you know, we really love your writing. You're really irreverent. You're not a. You're not afraid. You shit hell and damn, and and we just love it because it's so different. Uh, do you want to write for the New York Times? And my first thought is, who do I have to kill? And then my second thought was, um, guys, I know Frank Pryle. He's the best wine writer of this generation, Un undoubtedly. The, the wine columnist for the Times. And I said, there's no way that I would do an end run on Frank. And they said, no, 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 we're, we're, no, no, we're not talking about writing about wine. We want you to write about Scotch whiskey. And after I regained consciousness, um, I admitted to them, I just said, look, guys, I, I have to be honest with you. I'm a wine geek. I don't know anything about spirits uh scotch whiskey you know is that from scotland i mean i, I you know i don't know yeah. and they said well uh, do some on the job training but do you want this job or not so what do you say to the new york times when you know when you're in your late 30s and you're writing for a lot of different publications mm -hmm. uh, but it's the new york times so i said okay sign me up uh, but I said, I will tell you right now, I don't know anything about spirits. I don't know anything about whiskey. I don't know anything about scotch whiskey. And they said, we'll learn because this project will be for the Sunday magazine about a year from now. And we wanted to give you enough lead time so that you could get the information and write a great article for us. So that was it. And that 
changed my life forever, David, because after after that, after the after the Times gig, after that appeared in the Sunday magazine first Sunday in December nineteen eighty-nine, that was it. Changed my life forever. So and starting as a first on the first hand as a wine writer in the seventies and then as a spirits writer focusing on you know scotch whiskey in the late 80s there are two points there that historically have a lot of value which is 76 judgment of paris for wines and then particularly i guess starting in the 70s but particularly in the 80s the rise of single malts as as a real serious category for people yep. to look for um leaning more into the first one the judgment of paris moment which the wine community will know but uh to do kind of a TLDR version of it. California wines were put against French wines in Paris, and the California wines beat them in in blinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a re- it was really a watershed moment. And so, turning to the spirit side and the whiskey side in particular, over your years of writing, have you seen any points where, that that you would consider kind of judgment of Paris esque moments for whiskey? Yesterday, with Drinks International naming Michter's as the most respected whiskey in the world, that, I thought, one was totally deserved by Michter's and Joe Magliocco and and, uh, Andrea uh, Wilson. Um, uh, This is a great brand, and I'm really delighted that it was recognized as, I believe, the first American whiskey to be so honored uh, by Drinks International. Um, that was yesterday. Um, I'd point to 1984, David, mm-hmm. as the start of the real change in American whiskey. And that's when Elmer T. Lee said to himself, you know, um, uh, this uh, single malt scotch thing is growing uh, here in the mid 80s, but I want people to know around the world that American distillers can make just as great whiskeys as the Scots. And so he released Blanton's single barrel bourbon. I think that was a real game changer. Um, six years later, Booker No releases the um, small batch collection. Booker's, Baker's, Basil Hayden's, and Knob Creek. Uh, Another true watershed moment where uh, the conversation started changing. Started changing in two ways, actually. Through the 80s, as you so rightly point out, 70s and 80s, wine was the darling of the media. Wine was the darling of... uh, retailers on and off premise people and as you say in part it was because of the the, the paris event of steven spurrier uh, but also i would point out it was also because of the 1982 bordeaux vintage which was a phenomenal vintage and it put robert parker on the map and with parker and the wine spectator uh in particular taking off during that decade of the 80s, um, 
the, the conversation mostly centered for beverage alcohol purposes around wine and the rise of California, the, the glory of the Grand Clou, uh, the, the classified Bordeaux. Um, and then little increments during the 80s, Scotch was becoming, Scotch single malt was becoming much more of a presence in the marketplace. Um, but to be honest, when, when the Times came to me and said, do you want to write about Scotch whiskey for the Sunday magazine? Um, and I said, yeah, I do, but I don't know anything about it. And they said, well, learn. There was nothing out there. There was no information out there for me to, to look to. The only book that was out there was the Grossman's Guide to Wine and Spirits. That was it. And to be honest, that was really dated even then in the late 80s. So there was nothing. So uh, it was truly, and the, the Times guys were absolutely right when they said it's going to be on the job training because they knew there was no information out there. So fortunately, because the Times was making, um, uh, they were very profitable at the time, um, they sent me over to Scotland for a couple of weeks, basically, and just said, learn as much as you can and come back with 5,000 words. And so I did. Um, but really, it, it took a while for spirits to gain traction. And so watershed moments, I would definitely point to um, the rise of single malts, uh, slow but steady in the 80s, um, Elmer T. Lee releasing Blanton's, and Booker No releasing the small batch collection. I think those things really change the conversation a lot. Um, one funny story I have to tell you about when <laughs> I, was, I was part of the of the wine writers circle in New York uh, in, in the 80s. And um, somehow at one of the meetings after I had agreed and signed a contract with the Times, uh, somehow word got out that I was writing for the Times. And at one meeting of, of the wine writers circle, Alex Bespaloff, who I had just was kind of a, a mentor. He was kind of the leader of the pack. Um, and Alex came up to me and he said, uh, here you're uh, you're going to be writing about about whiskey for the for the New York Times. And I said, yeah, I mean, you know, fantastic opportunity, Alex. And he said, you know, I, I have to tell you. I think this is really going to hurt your wine writing career. And I said, you know, uh, let the chips fall where they may, but I, I really want to do this. And he said, Paul, uh, whiskey is brown. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, yep, it certainly is. <laughs> the more I'm tasting it now, yeah, it definitely is brown. No question about that, Alex. So, but I mean, it, it was... It was a slog. Uh, it was not easy getting information for me to write. Um, but then after after the Times Sunday Magazine article, Cognac producers started contacting me. Armagnac producers started contacting me. Vodka, gin producers started because they suddenly saw an opening for the very first time where a major publication stuck its neck out and started writing in their Sunday magazine about spirits. And that's that's what 
that's where I am today. It's all because of that one question. Do you want to write about Scotch whiskey for the New York Times? And I think it's worth noting that in that time period, as, as you say, it, it, I mean, this is before, um, this is before emails, uh, before most uh, producers had anything remotely related to a visitor's center or in like that. Occasionally you'd see people like Elmer or Booker going on tour and, and touting yeah. products, but they were very much just, they were trying to push product. It was not an era where they were yet celebrities as we have now mm-hmm. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you spoke a little bit about, you know, you were sent to Scotland and, and to learn. And because this was a period before all of that was available, before the information was available, before uh, easy access was available, uh, were you, I guess, what methods were you able to use to to get in with them? Is it a matter of showing up on the doorstep and saying, hey, I work for the New York, I'm writing for the New York Times and I want to think, uh, was there more dialogue than that? Um, and that can be for Scotch, but also for subsequent spirits that you wrote about. What I found on that first trip um, that time sent me on, and they said, go for two weeks, go to as many distilleries as you can. Um, don't be afraid to say who you're writing for. That may help give you some entree. To be honest, that first trip, and um, first trip, David, I was visiting like two distilleries a day. And this was, and this was grain distilleries as well as single malt. Because I really wanted to cover it all because I I didn't know if this was going to be a one of uh, situation with the time. So I, I didn't think at the time that I'd end up writing for the Sunday magazine for 17 years. I mean, it was the furthest thing from my mind. So I wanted to get as much in in that two week period as possible. So I was doing two distilleries a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. At every stop, I didn't even have to say I was writing for the New York Times. They were so happy to see an American journalist who, I, you know, they, it was, this was some sort of a, an occasion, you know, because no one was writing about spirits in the U.S. at that point. Nobody. I was it. So the fact that this American was coming over to learn and, you know, and I, and I was really upfront. I would tell them, I don't know, teach me as much as you can within this next two hours. And they loved it. And they would call ahead to the next place and say, Paul Packold's coming, you know, he's do what you can. He really wants to learn. So I, I was welcomed with open arms and nothing but enthusiasm and the most incredible hospitality, which I will never forget. Now, I've been to Scotland 29 times since that point, but I remember that first trip so much because uh, I was so humbled uh, by the fact that they were just so lovely and gave me as much information as they possibly could within the time allotment that we had. but because there was, as you say, there was nothing. And um, so it was, but in a way, you know, I think it was actually good. I, I feel blessed that there was nothing because I had to do all my own research. 
I, I you know, there was no Google. And, uh, you know, where today you could write an article and never leave your room. Um, do the research just from what's online. To me, there, there's nothing that beats being in the field and learning. Nothing. And, and and that's, again, not to say that, well, Google isn't a great tool or or that other books that are out now are great tools. I'm not saying that at all. It, it's all good because it's just more information and information is wonderful. But I feel lucky because uh, it was so the territory was so virgin at the time that I had no alternative but to go out in the field and learn. Go to when the time said, okay, let's do something on cognac and let's do something on French brandy. I'd go to France and learn on the ground from all these great producers. It was just a it was a different world. It was a different way of gaining the information that I needed to write something that <laughs> that made sense and that was coherent. Um which sometimes, you know, I, I had trouble with coherency, but um, it it was it was a great way for me to learn because I was on the ground, I was on site, I was talking to the people who made this shit. They, I'd talk to the guys in the warehouse. About, I'd go to Speyside Cooperage and learn how to raise a barrel. I'd go to France and learn and walk through the vineyards and harvest grapes for cognac. I would do all of that stuff. I don't know if you can do that today. I really don't. I guess you can. I, I don't know the level of energy of spirits writers today. I really don't. I mean, and again, it's not a criticism. I, I just don't know. Um, I would say a guy like Tony Sachs, he goes out in the field and he learns, you know. And so I think there still are some spirits journalists who have that understanding that the best way to do things is to go on site, talk face to face to the people and do it with respect and because they're all working hard. This is this is this is their legacy you're writing about. So but treat them with respect and, and you know, enjoy that they're giving you that time. I remember um, in 1994, maybe something like that, I was starting to write about uh, American whiskeys more because uh, I had toured with Booker No. We we introduced the small batch collection around the, the, the country. And so I was very psyched about American whiskey at the time. And this is before the big boom now. And so... I, I made an arrangement. I was in Kentucky and I said, gee, I'd really love to talk to Elmer T. Lee. And at the ancient, what was then the ancient age slash George T. Stagg distillery, it hadn't become Buffalo Trace yet. And uh, the, his secretary said, okay, uh, Elmer is really busy. He can see you for 30 minutes. And I thought, great, that's enough. That's enough. You know, I just want to say hello and just talk to him in Review him quickly, and I'm out of there. I won't take up any more of his time. So I get there, and Elmer, I meet Elmer in uh, one of the warehouses, and uh, so we're going around. And I'm very aware of the time because it was always important for me to be respectful of the people that I interviewed. I, I never wanted to overstay my invitation. Um, so I'm kind of. <laughs> We're looking at my watch, David, and I'm thinking, geez, you know, I'm here for an hour now, you know, and they said 30 minutes because Elmer's so busy. 
and you know, as we hit the hour and a half, I said to Elmer, you know, I, you were only supposed to give me 30 minutes, Elmer, and I feel like I'm really dominating your time. I know you've got a lot of other stuff to do. And he was, oh, no, God, let me take you to Warehouse H because that's where we have Blanton's. So we'd go over where I, I was with him for three hours. And that was the type of experience that I had. And that's why to this day, I love going to distilleries. And even if I know the process now in and out, even though one distillery can sometimes mirror the image of another one, uh, I always pick up something, some distiller, some some woman that will be in charge of the warehouse will give me some little nugget of information that I've never heard before, that I've learned that I go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Thanks for giving me that information for my readers. Uh, so it's it's all about that communication. It's all about the the freedom to say to somebody, okay, well, how do you do this exactly? And and what is the process? And why do you do this? And why do you use that type of barrel as opposed to this type of barrel? You can't do that on Google. You can only do that if you're there on site with the person right in front of you who has the answer. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Nicknean. Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation, and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks, STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks, that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nicknean's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts, not commonly found, in whiskey distilling, all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nicknean, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nicknean Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S. For more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskering Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. I agree. And um, obviously in the past few years with with COVID and with travel restrictions, we've had to adapt just a little bit. But um, if we expand the, the premise to speaking to the people who are doing the work, as you're saying, if you can't be on the ground with them, just speaking to the people and saying, Hey, why are you using this barrel? Why are you using mm-hmm. ISC versus, 
you know, your own cooperage or Adirondack or Baramel, you know, right. These subtle nuances are what make these spirits different and interesting. Um, and there, so I have one more question on, on this topic that I, I, that just came to me, which was simply when the New York times comes to you in 88 to start, to have you start writing in 99 about spirits or less about scotch i should say did anyone ever tell you why they chose basically why then you know what was happening then that said we need to start writing about scotch that's a really good question that no one has ever asked me before all the podcasts i've done um yeah i think the times saw they were watching as to what was happening in the marketplace. Um, and actually, David, the people who approached me were people from the sales team, mm. not necessarily the editorial. That I, I worked with later, the editorial team. But the three guys, Rich Calandria and, and his two uh, cohorts, they were from the sales team. And I tend to think that they were seeing in the marketplace what their advertisers at what restaurateurs, what what retail, what liquor retail stores were talking to them or whispering in their ear. They, I think, saw that Scotch whiskey was up and coming. And, and you yourself had mentioned it, um, how in the 80s, single malls were beginning to gain traction in the US marketplace. Unquestionably, that was the case. But I think the times were ahead of the curve um, in that they saw there's some real potential here. Let's have this guy write this article and let's see where it lands in terms of the readership. Will the readership respond to it? Um, they asked me to, to go to Scotland, come back with 5,000 words for the Sunday magazine. And I came back and I submitted 10,000 words. <laughs> and I did that because I was so jazzed. I was so enthusiastic and totally excited about this subject of Scotland and Scotch whiskey that I way overwrote. And I submitted the 10,000 words and I hadn't heard anything for about three weeks from the Times. And I thought, I screwed up my my big chance and I way overwrote and now they're trying to figure out what the hell are we going to do with this thing. So I called the editor and I said, Tom, I, I'm so sorry that I overwrote some. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I haven't heard anything. I don't know if, if you like it, if you hate it. He said, we're passing it around the office. It's fantastic. Can you do 2,000 more words? <laughs> so, so I did. So I added a few sidebars. It ended up being 2,000 words. And it ended up being a 28-page section in the Sunday magazine. And the readership went nuts. And that's why the Times and said, look, we got to sign you up. Let's do three more in 1990. And let's see where this thing goes. You want to write about cognac? Huh? 
let's go. We'll send you to France. And so that was it. But it just, I mean, nobody, to be honest, I, I don't think even the Times had expected the reaction that they got from that first 28-page uh, uh, special section. I, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I, I was just happy that I was in the New York Times and I figured if, you know, now at least I could call Rod Strong. <laughs> so after he had said, do not call me until you're writing for the New York Times. So now I felt at least I could call Rod and say, hey, boss, guess what? And at that time, too, I'm just thinking, and promise last thing, and then we'll I'll move on to the next topic, which is that at that exact time as well, if you're coming, if, if you were approached by the sales department, these are also people who likely would have seen the first bottlings of uh, what at that time would have been called Johnny Walker oldest that later became Johnny Walker blue label, Correct. which, you know, even, even today is still seen as a status symbol in an office or something like mm -hmm. that. But at that time would have been uh, even as a blend, it would have been a status symbol. So I, I mm -hmm. can just imagine some of them seeing that in some of their friends' offices and thinking, Hmm, this is something that's popping up in high end yep. offices. Yeah. We need to write about this. Um, so just something to, Which, to and and this. Johnny Walker Blue was the brainchild of James Espy, right? Uh, a legendary figure in in um, in British spirits world. I mean, uh, and he saw he saw the future. I mean, no question. Mm -hmm. And now, as much as we talk about single malts, blends rule the roost in terms of sales, in terms of marketing. Right. So. Well, that can be a whole other tangent, though. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll, I'll, so, but so I wanted to spend some time on your, of course, your reviewing system. Uh, you spoke earlier about how you developed it. That you only that you have a very specific regimen you've handled over over the years, and uh, you actually spell it out quite well on your website. So I encourage. I won't spend the time now on it, but I encourage people to look at the website again to really see what is the process that Paul Packle will use to evaluate a spirit. Um, there are elements that I realized I use in my own evaluations, some that I don't. I've definitely done more than six. I, I try not to because I agree with you, it's just too much. Um, but other than that, uh, the main points to hit are how to do it, how to taste, how to smell. Mm. Um, so I encourage people to look at that. Uh, but I wanted to dig a little deeper and talk about your well, let's start with scoring i guess so when uh when you first spoke with mark gillespie uh this was back in 2012 on on whiskey cast um and you've been out of there a couple of times so this is i think your first interview there uh mark admitted that he'd been accused of being a high scorer um overall so scores tending to be higher than let's say a normal bell curve and his counter to that was simply that, well, I get sent good stuff. You know, I, I'm not getting sent everything. I'm getting sent good mm -hmm. stuff. So right. the higher scores are organic. It's not bias. It's just what they are. Um, so within that context, uh, the first question I want to ask you was for your own spirit reviewing, do you taste and rate everything that gets sent to you? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And the reason is um, I always discover something new. Um, part of the, the luxury, I mean, 
Sue figured out about two years ago that I've reviewed about 33,000 spirits since 1989 um, of all categories. Um, but, uh, you know, and if I say that to somebody, they say, well, you know, uh, what, have you stopped now? And I'm, nope, <laughs> nope. Why? Because I always learn something. And, you know, I never, and I, I say this in my book, um, New Kindred Spirits, I never would consider myself the final arbiter on this subject. Never. I think there's so many good voices out there right now. Um, plus, I also feel, and I'm not being disingenuous here, David, but I also feel even after all these years, I'm always learning. This is such a huge, complex, um, historically important subject, beverage alcohol. Um, and, I, and Dave Wandrich, uh, my good friend Dave Wandrich and I have talked about this many times, how Dave being the epitome of cocktail historian um, and also a, a tremendous palate for spirits, um, and me being the, the spirits guy, we've often talked about how even with all the tasting that we've done together, apart, um, it's just an amazing experience when you you taste a whiskey and you go, "Whoa, man! I you know, I've never tasted anything like that before." And where did that come from? That that came. It was a you know that was a thunderbolt. Um, so I'm I'm always encouraged that. I'm, I will never go to something uh, and taste it and evaluate it and go, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, been there, done that. Very rarely does that happen. Uh, and I think it comes down to I'm so strict with the regimen. You know, I, I just taste from 8.30 in the morning to 11.30. That's it. I'll only do six. I'll only do one category. I don't mix categories. Um but I learn something every every morning. I will learn something new. And I think that's really, to me, it shows the remarkable complexity of what distillation and often maturation in oak, what these two processes do to create something that even I am going, wow. <laughs> this, where did that come from? And hats off to that particular distiller or or warehouse manager, because they saw something that was really unique and just I haven't tasted it before. So that's why I keep tasting. So I have, you know, uh, probably about 40, yeah, I'd say probably about 40 whiskeys, spirits, rums, tequilas to taste over the next few weeks. Um, but it's an adventure. It truly is an adventure. Plus, now, I mean, as you know, uh, as well as anyone, this is the age of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you have all these very creative people doing things with different barrels, uh, marrying different types of spirits, you know, marrying rum and whiskey. I mean, who would have thought of that in the late 
1980s, early 1990s. Nobody. But now we have this this wonderful golden age. And I truly believe this is a golden age right now that we're all the beneficiaries of um, of spirits, uh, experimentation. Sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, I've been helping uh, I can't name them, unfortunately, because of uh, non-disclosure, but I've been helping this producer with or this music producer with uh, a tequila. And so sending me different things from different producers and, you know, some are just God awful. And, you know, I wouldn't, I'd be ashamed to have his name on a bottle with that stuff. But I'm also finally finding stuff that is absolutely remarkable and so different uh, because I said to him, let's find a producer that does not have any additives that doesn't believe in putting additives in, that doesn't believe in putting agave syrup, that doesn't believe in putting turbinado sugar in. Let's do, let's find that person. And so we have, and now this guy's over the moon with what we found. So it's, it's that kind of excitement that I find that, you know, we're living in this era of no boundaries. <laughs> it's just, wow, let's experiment. Let's try it. You know, and some people, you know, the, the purists, I, I would, I did a, a book signing and a tasting a few weeks ago in New Haven, Connecticut. And somebody came up to me and said, yeah, I've been fo following your career for ever. And it's been great. And, and, but, you know, do you think that all this experimentation is really a good idea? Or a bad idea. And I said, I think it's a brilliant idea. And I'm delighted that there's so many intrepid people out there who want to do different things to bring something different to the dance than what's been brought previously. And he was, well, you know, I still like things in the old way. And and I said, well, you know, that's your choice. It's a, you know, we uh, live in a democracy and, and fantastic. But I love all the experimentation and I really encourage distillers. Yeah, let's let's find something new. And it's funny that you say that. I mean, I'm I'm looking at my desk, it's uh it's kind of crazy at the moment, but um, you know, I'm looking at the mix. I've got the truck hall Patagonian spirit, uh, the box of 1928, that's the whiskey Calvados Armagnac coming in, the Victor's toasted from this year, some spirit of Ven. Yeah, you know the the stuff that's here is all boundary pushing. It's in the case of Tricol, it's a brand new spirits category, mm -hmm. um, and I agree. There's there is, I do feel a golden age happening. Obviously, I haven't been through mm -hmm. the previous ones, but um, mm -hmm. you know, but it feels like there is something there. But on on the flip side of that, I so a few weeks ago I was speaking to uh, Maggie Kimbrell. And she recounted a, a good story to me that I want to share just as part of this, which was, you know, she runs, uh, she assigns tastings for uh, American Whiskey Magazine as part mm -hmm. of her job as content editor. And sometimes she has people spent, send spirits to her who will say, I mean, she says there's a year wait. If it's something that's time sensitive, like really consider somewhere else. But more so, she says, my tasters are Susan Riegler and Peggy No Stevens. So understand that your product is going to be tasted by these two women. So 
keep that in mind with what you send because we can only work with what you send. And uh, the reason that I, I recount that story is I was thinking, as you described your process, not only for your own regimen, but for how you designed uh, the Ultimate Spirits competition, you were uh, very open about saying you feel a responsibility to distillers, producers, to uh, respect their product and mm -hmm. give it its due and its time. Uh, to turn that on its head a little bit with keeping in mind what, what Maggie had said, do you think on a certain level that producers have a responsibility to you and to other reviewers to put their best foot forward and to send products that they think should be reviewed? Yes. Um, except for the people <laughs> I've given one star to um, with for their product. But um, yeah, I, I think they should be careful with what they send. Um, a bad review doesn't do anyone any good. It really doesn't. Uh, and I have given plenty over my time. I mean, I still to this day have people who won't talk to me because I gave their product a one star or a two star, or I said something in the in the notes that was not very complimentary. But I also think that's the chance you take. So why not send to reviewers what you think are your best products? So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's a responsibility to the reviewer as much as to themselves. And if there are, if they have partners, if they have stockholders, uh, I think, yeah, I think they should really think about, is this good enough? to send off to Maggie, to Paul, to Tony, to whoever, uh, you know, to Tony Abogannum's uh, tag uh, uh, spirits competition. Are they good? Enough? Are they going to be representative of what I do and, and my vision as, as a distiller? So, yeah. I, do they have a responsibility to us? No, I don't think so. I, I really don't. Um, and I will often tell people who say, well, can I send something for review? I always tell people, or Sue will tell them the same thing. There are no guarantees. And if something is not from my promontory of vision of doing so many reviews over the years, if I don't think it lives up to that particular standard that has been set in my mind, then yeah, it's not going to get a good review. Um, I think that's just the chance people take. And with uh, your rating system, which is a, a five-star rating system, mm -hmm. uh, on the lower level, you do have an automatic one star, which is for when you can tell that something is spoiled, that there was bacteria mm -hmm. in the barrel, something mm -hmm. was really off, some fundamental flaw that obscures anything else about the spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, there are of course, one and two star reviews that didn't have that. It was just a, a mm -hmm. poor product for one reason or another. Um, when you come across those, and this this kind of branches off from the previous question, when you come across those where you can tell, okay, something went wrong here, 
you know, do you ask for a retasting? Do you just have a conversation with the producer or is it, this is what they sent and that's what I have to work with? Oh, no, I, I, uh, our policy has always been to let people know. And if they want to send another sample, because, I mean, you know, uh, David, as you know, sometimes um, either in transit um, or there'll be a mistake made at the source. Mm-hmm. And if something is really, really off, then we will always say, we feel there's a problem here. We don't want to do this to you publicly. If you want, send us another sample. So, no, we always give people that out, that that exit ramp if they want. Um, I really, you know, I, I don't want to be in the business of being a brand destroyer. I really don't. Uh, I, I want to bring out what's good about products. Um, but, um, you know, um, <laughs> sometimes it, even on the second go round, it just isn't there. It's just not hitting the mark uh, of what's been established at, at that categorical standard. Um, sometimes it's just not there. And, you know, it's, I would rather tell people that so that if it's not in the marketplace yet, you know, I'm happy to give them some advice on what either shelve it completely, get rid of it and start from scratch, or this is how I think it can be improved. You know, we can salvage this. Um, So we, we like to give people options. Um, I don't like. I don't take joy in giving a bad review at all. Uh, our readers, for some reason, love it when something is panned. Uh, you've experienced this. I know you have. That, yeah, there, you know, there's, a, there's a Schadenfreude element going on. There, exactly. Sure. You know, and yeah. I take no joy in that. I, I would much rather, rather than give something one or even two stars, which is kind of yeah, it's it's acceptable. You know, you can drink it, but it's. I I I take joy in three, four, and five stars. I mean that that's where I always like to look at, at another reviewer. I like to see what are they crowing about. What are they saying? Yeah, yeah, this is great. Uh, seeing a bad review doesn't give me any joy. It really doesn't. And because, you know, I just think I know what it takes to put a product together. I mean, I, you know, I've been consulting for 20 years. So I know what the organic process is to make these products. I know how much financial commitment uh, is involved with uh, being a distiller, uh, having an aging warehouse. Uh, and then having a marketing plan, it's a lot of money. It's it's where people's identity is. So to to trash that, I, I hate to do it. And that's why we give people a second chance. It, it's worth noting is that I have this kind of same system. I, if something, I use a 10-point system instead of the five stars. That's just the one that I um, adapted and adapted and adopted. And for example, if it's between one and three star, uh, one and three points out of the ten point scale, I've started to say, you know, let's have a conversation. This is a point where mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to the distiller or the producer and say, okay, either maybe my palate was wrong. I taste things mm-hmm. multiple times, so not likely, but maybe my palate was wrong, or maybe something was wrong with the batch. But let's let's talk about this yeah. because 
it's worth it. And most of the time they will have the conversation. I've only had two that have basically said, you know, screw you and hmm. all that. Um, but the other point too is to your point about being a brand killer, you know, or not wanting to be a brand killer is the more accurate way to put it. We know that there are brands that can take it. If you put a negative review out on this year's Michter's release of the toasted barrel rye. I mean, I happen to like it, but let's say I didn't, you know, they can handle a bad review. Heaven Hill, mm-hmm. Buffalo Trace, mm-hmm. Jim Beam, they can handle a bad review of a product. If, you know, I didn't like the most recent Booker's release, other people are loving it. There's, there's enough out there to counterbalance and to give plenty of marketing material uh, aside from just me. But when you're dealing with a smaller brand, particularly newer ones or just very small ones that are older, one bad review from a, a significant reviewer can really damage the brand. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you that it's up to kind of our discretion as reviewers. Obviously, you've reviewed many more things than I have and have built much more of a name so far, but there's a responsibility for us to say, mm-hmm. you know, do we want to put that review out there? Mm-hmm. And it's something I'm encouraging more people to do. Yes, it's it's on one hand, we want more readership and you do get that with the low reviews, as you said, uh, but I would rather have fewer readers on that particular review and focus on things that are either good or that can handle it and deal with the others on a low key basis. That's, that's my own pontification. Well, no, but I, I agree. And to me, it, it goes back to um, somebody got into this gig and this industry probably at great expense because, you know, like, you know, um, you know, all the it's five to seven million dollars. That's just the startup money for a distillery nowadays, five to seven million. And that's probably at the low end anymore. So, you know, it's a it's a big financial commitment for most people. Uh, oh, yeah. But also it's it's somebody if they want to start a brand, it's it's a reflection of their of who they are. So there's there's a human element to this also, which Sue and I always take into account that we never want to be a spoiler for a brand. We never want to hurt someone's feelings. We we would prefer to just say, look, as you say, uh, let's work on this. You know, maybe maybe we can get this one out of the woods and and into the marketplace in a way where you'll be happy because uh, it isn't the first bottle people buy; it's the second bottle. That's what makes mm-hmm. a brand. So we're always the reason we have pretty much um, cleared our decks so we could be consultants now full-time is this very reason there's so many people out there right now that need help they need the experience of somebody who's been around the block a few times maybe more than i'll be willing to admit but um who can give them some perspective uh historically and also the present time of what's in the marketplace and does this measure up to that i'd much rather work with somebody and have them come to a happy conclusion rather than having them think man did i make a mistake by getting involved in this did i make a mistake by mortgaging my house to to start this thing 
that's, you know, I don't want to be in that business. I, I want to be in the business of seeing people be successful. Ooh. So speaking of uh, quite successful <laughs> brands, uh, I want to transition over uh, just for a few minutes to your most recent books, one of them being the third mm. volume of Kindred Spirits uh, mm. from 2021. Um, that one, uh, I'll, I have not had a chance to get my copy. It was delayed. So I um, will refrain. I'll refrain anything from speaking, but having read the first two, I'm sure it's up obviously up to the same quality. I know your standards. So um, that's not a concern at all. Uh, it's more about gives people a, a really good way to get into the spirit without having to spend a ton of money. You have the recommendations for where to start mm. or, you know, don't, don't start with the George T stack. Don't start mm. with, mm. Um, don't start with Bauer proof because you'll probably not going to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> and I mean, look, I, I tell people there was a point in my journey where wild Turkey as a brand was too spicy for me. So I, I get that you need to build up. <laughs> um, so th that's the first part. Uh, so kindred spirits, definitely um, take a look again. I can't speak on it personally yet. The other one that also came out in 2021 was uh, Buffalo Barrels and Bourbon. Mm. And this was uh, the story of what is now called Buffalo Trace Distillery. Uh, as you mentioned, had many names in the past, Ancient Age, George T. Stagg Distillery, uh, over its years in, in existence. And I wanted to, to talk to you about that book because, number one, it, it's actually started a line of research for myself. I'm starting a project on uh, Lewis Rosensteel and on Shenley uh, because there's not really much written about them and which I find shocking. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other part that I wanted to get more of your opinion on was the book itself had a certain structure, each mm -hmm. chapter set up as kind of a, a mini no, no, as a vignette of mm -hmm. one particular person's role in the growth of this distillery over time so talking from everyone from colonel e.h taylor to to lewis rosensteel to elmer t lee and uh, of course today's leader is in harlan wheatley and um, until recently mark brown mm -hmm. uh, and the way that it was set up actually helped me quite a bit to understand this distillery because as you can tell i like thinking about through people's minds and how it happened so each one showed what this particular person brought to what is now Buffalo Trace. Uh, so the first question I want to ask you on that was when you're approaching this project, this is the first uh, full-length book you had written in several years, uh, the first focus on a distillery or a company since mm -hmm. your work on Jim Beam and then Chivas Regal. Right. Uh, when you're writing this, you're obviously you're writing it differently than you would a review, and you're also writing it now in an age where there's so many podcasts and sites out there. So, as you approached it, did you have to? Did you feel that you had to adjust your writing and research style from previous projects you had done? No. No, I. I it's it's all the same to me. Um, the joy for me, it took me three years to write that book. Well, it took us because Sue did a major, major uh, job of the research. Um, 
But no, I approach it the same way, David, as I did uh, Double Scotch in American Still Life. Uh, two years of research where I purposely do not write because I feel that um, the research period is by far and away the most important element. So we spent two years of doing uh, very, very little else but uh, being in Kentucky, looking at the archives. Um, and then I spent a year writing it and editing it. So it was a three-year project, uh, pretty much in line with uh, the previous two books on, on brands. Um, I think the joy with this one, and I think I enjoyed writing uh, Buffalo Barrels and Bourbon more than any of the other previous six books, was it surprised me. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea. Uh, our publisher and our friends at Wiley, who are just a delight. I mean, I know a lot of authors hate their publishers. We don't. We, we have such a good relationship with Wiley. Um, they're just a joy to write for. Um, but it, it, what surprised me was that I realized after two years of research, being in Kentucky, being on site at Buffalo Trace, walking down to where the buffalo for millennia crossed that spot on the Kentucky River, which mostly is uh, protected by these tall palisades of limestone for much of its much of its length, but this one low spot, and we walk down there, and there was something about it that I found. I, I felt like I was transported to another period. It was like a, a time warp because I was picturing. Buffalo, millions of them crossing this spot. And that made me realize how to start the book. I had to start the book not with whiskey at all, not with the distilleries, not with all the great personalities associated with Buffalo Trace and, and Ancient Age and George T. Stagg distilleries. But I had to start it with Buffalo. <laughs> and why did they cross this spot? And secondly, why was this spot so perfect an environment to have distilleries? Um, and so that's why the, the first, I th think I figured 20% of the book had nothing to do with whiskey. It had everything to do with why that spot and the immigration from the colonies through the Ohio Valley to Southern Indiana, to Southern Ohio, to Northern Kentucky, the, the hardships that it took, the, the ballsy courage that it took, these men and women, pioneers, to settle this land um, that was just so verdant and so full of, of wildlife and so great, the soil and, and the climate were so great for the growing of corn. I felt that was the most, the book had to start there and to follow through the first couple of chapters that that history of first, why did Buffalo cross this point? Um, 
and then why did all these people from the colonies decide hey this this is this is much better than the, the original 13 colonies because it's wide open uh, except of course for the indigenous peoples who of course suffered the the greatest tragedies of all in in that movement west but that I felt that story had to be told before I could even think about talking about the first distillery that was there in 18, I think, 57 or something like that, if I recall. Um, that story had to be told properly. And I think that's what gave me the greatest joy was figuring Gee, I never expected to be talking about this. I never expected to be talking about the schist. Uh, soil types. I never, that was so perfect for the growing of corn. I, I never thought about that um, until we did the research. And and somehow, once I settled on telling that story, the rest of it just came so easily because the personalities involved, and, and you named them, Albert Blanton and George T. Stagg and E.H. And, uh, e. Taylor. I mean, these were incredible people. Um, who some of them had amazing flaws. I mean, E.H. Uh, e. Taylor was a very colorful guy. I mean, <laughs> both negative and positive. But, you know, it was it just told a great story. Louis Rosenthal, um, you know, this amazing businessman, a genius for business, who was a visionary, who understood during Prohibition, buy up distilleries because this isn't... Prohibition is not going to last forever. And I want to be ready when Franklin Roosevelt says, okay, this is done. I want to be ready to hit the ground running the very next morning. So he bought all these distilleries that he bought them for a song because they were available. They People were happy to sell them because it was prohibition and they weren't doing nothing except for the occasional one doing some medicinal distillation. So all of these wonderful personalities that were associated with what is now Buffalo Trace, it was just so easy to write after that original change of direction for me in how I saw this story begin. And Buffalo Trace has held a a place of high esteem in your writing for for many years. I think even mm-hmm. for the for the few years you were writing about American whiskey before it was called Buffalo Trace when it was still the yep. Charles Stag Distillery. Uh, with a change in 99. Uh, so it's kind of a difficult question to ask, and I, I hope you'll understand the intent behind it. With After writing for many years about the products from Buffalo Trace and with admiration and uh, being impressed by their, their quality overall, in approaching this project where you're telling a story about a distillery and its history that you have already written positively about in the past mm-hmm. to a great degree um, were you concerned at all with either actual or perceived bias in mm-hmm. the writing of the book mm-hmm. um yes and no yes in that i made it clear right from the introduction that when i approached mark brown and amy presky at buffalo trace um, who now have both, uh, well, Mark has stepped back and Amy has left the company. But I was really clear with them that I'm gonna, I would love to write this book, 
uh, our publisher is very keen on the idea, uh, but the research can lead to maybe some different places that are different from what you perceive that story to be. But our research is, I'm going to double check, I'm going to corroborate, I'm going to, so it may be different. Mark Brown, uh, to his credit, just said, run with it. We're going to open up our archives. Maybe you'll find some stuff that we don't even know about because the, the archives, David, are just <laughs> huge. Yeah. Um, but we're going to live with it. We, we believe in you. We believe you're going to be fair. And if something is different from what we believe it to be, then that's great then we'll change our attack. So they were completely honest with me as uh, Sue and I were with them. They were incredibly gracious and open. I mean, they, uh, David, they opened up with their archivist, um, Madison, at the time. I believe she's no longer with them. Um, but Madison opened it up to us, and we spent days down there pouring through a box after box of stuff. Um, some of it yeah, was not here or there, wasn't germane to the, to, to the outline, uh, but much of it was. And a lot of it was very different to what their marketing, to what their website claims, but they were okay with it. And uh, in fact, they, they have been um, uh, one of the biggest promoters of the book. And... Um, so I, I think it spoke to me a lot about character from their side that they thought, let them get the truth out there. So, uh, and that's why I said right at the beginning of the book, you know, um, yes, I have been associated with them. I've been friends with the with them for a long time. Um, on the other hand, they understand that where the research takes us, that's what we're going to write about. And that's how it was. And it was fine. I think for me, I'm satisfied with that answer. That's because it's, it's tough because I, it, that was the first book review that I did. And I, I'll send that to you separately so you can see, and I welcome your feedback on what you think about what I thought. Um, but overall it was very positive on the book. And as I said, it's led to my own research. So I can't, I, I certainly will not uh, turn my nose up at it. Or no, you at know, I think, I think there's always, uh, there's always a chance that someone might see it as, uh, as a marketing tool. Um, but in our case, I think because people know uh, Sue and me so well after all these years, uh, they know that we have never been shields for anyone. Uh, we would just never allow that. Um, and uh, Buffalo Trace didn't pay us the advance. Uh, Wiley paid us the advance, and now all the all the royalties. Uh, so, you know, there you go. <laughs> Understood. So, uh, Mr. Paul Packle, we are unfortunately at time. So, um, there are questions, of course, that I still have yet to answer, but we'll have to have you back to, to ask those. I'd be happy uh, to be back anytime, David. It's been a total joy. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, hang on with me for just a moment after I end the recording, just to close things out. 
Um, as mentioned in the show notes, there will be links, of course, to Paul's website, to uh, where you can find the books, uh, where you can find his writing. And uh, I encourage you to pick up both the third edition of Kindred Spirits, Buffalo Barrels and Bourbon. And with that, thank you all for listening. Uh, rate and subscribe, review wherever you can, and I'll see you all next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, Please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.